And good morning, Gary. And good evening, Jonathan. And I hope your weather there, you're in, middle, you're in the middle of winter now, aren't you, or close to it? Winter isn't coming, Gary. Winter is here. For okay. Us, for us, it is cold and it is wet. You know, I mean, there, there actually is actual real rain falling and all that kind of a stuff, which, if you're not from here, you don't realize just how welcome and alien it is. You know, I live in a place where it's almost against the law to complain about rain. Mm-hmm. You know? On the other hand, I've had uh, three days ago, Chicago had reached had its record rainfall for the month of July. I mean, the most rainfall since records were being kept in 1860-something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've had flooding and that sort of thing. So it sounds to me like my summer isn't that different from your winter. <laughs> it may not be. I mean, it's going to be, what, 20 degrees centigrade today or something, or maybe 18 degrees centigrade. So I don't know what that is. Uh, probably mid-60s or something. I don't know. And, and it's gray and cloudy and there's rain and, you know, people are staying inside. I will say, though, that uh, speaking of weather, uh, when I was a kid, I made a, uh, I, I somehow had a, an association between reading and bad weather. Mm-hmm. And I still have that. I mean, when we had a major 22-inch blizzard here in February uh, and classes were canceled, I just curled up with a book. It was great. And one of the great reading experiences of the last uh, couple of years, really, just in terms of how you are and where you're sitting when you're reading, was uh, when I was finishing... Uh, the unpronounceable Neil Stevenson novel, oh. which I am not pronouncing the title as Read Me with a Typo. <laughs> it's, a, it's a little bit like Greg Bear's slant, isn't it? Well, yeah, exactly, uh, because you, can, uh, you, you can't really pronounce that. And then, uh, so, yeah, the, the, but the thing is, the last, uh, it's a very long novel, as all mm. of his are, and he just writes that way. I, I, I'm not holding it against him. No, no. But it becomes... It's a very suspenseful international chase thriller for the last several hundred pages. And I was reading the last couple of hundred pages during a massive thunderstorm with crashing lightning and crashing mm-hmm. thunder and lightning. It's exactly the perfect way to read a book like that. <laughs> it reminded me when I was a kid reading the end of the Mo- Count of Monte Cristo during a thunderstorm. Okay. And so, well, one of the secrets of reviewers is maybe uh, people out there will not like to know that uh, a book may get a good review based on what the weather was like when you were reading it. <laughs> that could give any any writer a nightmare, couldn't it? It's like, you mean it was the weather? What am I supposed to do? I wrote the best book I could. i got to ask you a question about the book formerly known as Read Me. Mm-hmm. Um, is it science fiction, Gary? It is not science fiction. So it is, it is what Locus would typically qual- uh, classify as associational well this is an interesting question because uh, an associational book yes it is uh, uh, an associational book is my understanding from years of talking with Charles Charles would have absolutely insisted that we review this book because it's Neil Stevenson who is of great interest uh, to science fiction mm-hmm. um, readers and who uses very science fictional techniques even when he's writing a thriller as this one is sure. There, there are moments when it comes to the edge of science fiction. If you, if you parse out the timing of it, it takes place, I think, in 2013 or something. Okay. Um, that's not a major part of it. And mm-hmm. there's a great deal about massive multiplayer online gaming in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of the publicity about it suggests that the game somehow bleeds into the real world, which doesn't really happen. Um, the, the, the gaming is essentially uh, the setup for what becomes the, the, yeah. the, uh, the thriller, the adventure story. Yeah. And... And I have no problem reading a book like that if it's uh, if it's going to be that interesting to um, 
the science fiction sure. readers. I got a book to review this week. Yeah. As a matter of fact, a nonfiction book, which I, I, I have not talked to my reviews editor about whether I should cover it. <laughs> yeah. It's a book by uh, John Grant, who we know as Paul Barnett. Yep. Yep. Uh, worked on the Encyclopedia of Fantasy called Denying Science, Conspiracy Theories, Media Distortions, and the War Against Reality. Okay. And it's just delightful. I mean, it's, it's not delightful if you're an American because then you – it's full of these statistics like 40% of Americans you know, believe the Earth is 10,000 years old and, <laughs> and the, the documentary and people live with dinosaurs. Um, it's, it's got the autism versus you know, the, the, the autism uh, uh, vaccination link. It's got the global warming deniers in it and so forth and so sure. on. And it's the kind of thing that science fiction readers would gobble up. There was a book like this that came out a couple of years ago in the UK called Bad Science, yeah. uh, which was the same sort of thing. Uh, the kind of thing that Martin Gardner had been doing for years and years in Scientific American debunking these things. Uh, it's com completely associational, but what it is is ammunition for science fiction readers to use against their massively ignorant friends and family. <laughs> Sounds interesting. Let me ask you a question about the, the book formerly known as Read Me. Mm -hmm. I read everything of Stevenson's up to Cryptonomicon, and I loved Cryptonomicon. I hmm. threw my hands up in despair at the enormously long trilogy, and I did not read Anathem either. Is hmm. this the one to check back in with? Um, okay, here's one of the things that Stevenson does as a characteristic move, and he's done it in Cryptonomicon, he's done it in all three of the Baroque cycle novels, and he did yeah. it certainly in Anathem, is that he writes more than one novel at a time. Uh, I, I think uh, the... Uh, middle volume in uh, uh, the Baroque cycle, Confusion, was actually issued as two or possibly three separate novels. Yeah. Uh, one called Junkto, and I forget the titles of the others. Um, and one of those is a perfectly fine Robert Louis Stevenson international adventure with pirates and slaves and, uh, um, and, and, and slave rebellions and all sorts of things in it. Um, even in Cryptonomicon, which begins with this gonzo future and turns into this really sophisticated information age technological thing that you know would have been worth, worthy of Werner Vinci, pretty soon you're not in a Thomas Pynchon novel anymore. You're yeah. in a, a Neil Stevenson novel. Yeah. Um, this one does the same thing. This one spends a couple of hundred pages giving you all sorts of details about uh, online gaming and uh, giving you enough details about the game itself uh, to, to view it as a kind of fantasy world. Okay. And then at some point, uh, Russian gangsters and spies get involved, and the game takes a back seat. Yeah. So, so he characteristically makes this move where at some point in the novel, it just takes off. And Anathem, uh, which begins, some people found Anathem absolutely, absolutely unreadable for the first 300 pages or so. Yeah. And it, it was dense. It was a reconstruction of philosophy. And I wasn't that impressed by it. I thought, okay, this is very clever. But, you know, I'm waiting for something to happen. And when things started happening, when it turned into something very close to a space opera at the end, they happened very fast. So he can write action and suspense very, very well. Yeah. And I think if you can, uh, if you're fascinated enough with the details of gaming to get past the first 300 pages, it really accelerates. <laughs> I mean, I ask this because, I mean, it is a 400,000 word novel. And you, when you yes. say things like, if, if you can stick with it for the first 300 pages... And surely one thing that's almost, how do I put it? It, it? it seems a pretty commonly accepted thing that you, know, you give a book 100 pages to get you going. And if, if you're not you know, interested after 100 pages, you, you know, sort of you, you set, set it aside and move along. 
it sounds like this one might struggle to kind of make, pass through that barrier. Um, well, I mean, this is this is one of the things with the uh, with the scale that Stevenson tends to work in. Mm. Uh, the uh, for any writer, yeah, you're right. For any novel, I'll give it fifty pages. Yeah. But fifty pages for any novel is three hundred pages for another <laughs> Stevenson. Well, I mean, uh, and, and, yeah, he wrote a couple of novels with his uncle under the name Stephen Barry mm-hmm. or Stephen. Yeah, Zodiac and another one. Yeah, Zodiac and uh, Interface. Yeah, and they were both pretty good thrillers. They were they were very modestly scaled. Uh, they were not outstanding, but they but again, the suspense writing was efficient. The details were well thought out. They were uh, they were like super intelligent. Well, not those, but. Parts of this one are like super intelligent versions of a Robert Ludlum novel. Okay. But yeah, I mean, you just have to read. I, I finally concluded you have to read Neil Stevenson somewhat differently from the way you read anybody else. <laughs> well, I was going to say that it, it also throws my mind back to a. I think it would have been a Dan Chow review from Locus of Peter mm-hmm. Hamilton's The Neutronian Alchemist, I think it was. Um. Mm-hmm. No, the reality dysfunction, the first of that set. And I'd started reading this book, you know, because everyone was saying, like, gosh, wow, it's a big space opera. It's like, it's really, really terrific. Mm. You've got to read it. And I was reading it, and I was finding the beginning of it a bit of a slog, and I was about the 100-page mark. And I read Dan's review, and it said, yeah, if you can get through the 400-page prologue, the book's terrific. Mm. And I just set it aside and never went back. I'm going, you don't get a 400-page prologue. Sorry. That's just no. not going to happen. Uh, you know, I'd be tempted as the as an editor to say the first thing we'll do is we'll cut the four hundred page prologue and then see how we go from there. Um, it's also interesting working out how you find your feet in a book and determine that it is science fiction because I mean yeah, yeah you're saying I mean technically you know the book formerly known as Read Me uh, is set in the near future. I started reading a book oh, this week, and you know there's no doubt that that book is a science fiction novel because. You start with somebody walking across the surface of Mercury, making sure that they stay on the shade side of the Terminator kind of a thing, so that they're mm-hmm. not vaporized by the sun. And you're going, that is science fiction. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no doubt. But some, even something like Cryptonomicon. Is Cryptonomicon science fiction? Not really, I don't think, probably. But it, no. it, I mean, Charles would, I, would have said it was science fiction you well, know, yes, It had that science fiction worldview. And that's what made it of interest. And science fiction people um, certainly embraced it. Yeah. Uh, the last couple of William Gibson novels, are they science fiction? Um, they're basically as, I forgot who it was. Was it Gibson himself who said that the future has arrived but simply unevenly distributed? Mm. They're about the future which has arrived but the rest of us don't know about it. Yet. <laughs> just stuff. Yes. Yes. Um, so it reads like science fiction. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, Zero History. Uh, yeah. But again, Zero History is essentially a thriller, uh, and it's a thriller based on <laughs> based on extremely rare kinds of denim, I guess. <laughs> Could you imagine trying to pitch that book to a publisher? I want to write a thriller about rare denim, and they're going, like, oh, "Yes, right." That'd be great. That'd be great. Let's do that. In fact, yeah. I have I have a copy of the book, and you could almost put me off with that description, Gary. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I mean, that's a challenge for writers to, is to do things like that. But I, the, 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 that line uh, between science fiction and nonfiction is, and we've talked about blurring genres, boundaries, but, but 
the boundaries, the outer boundaries of science fiction are very, very difficult to tell because uh, there are novels that are published completely as mainstream novels. One of the ones I read a couple of years ago, and I um, very briefly met the author, Victor Laval, had written a book called Big Machine. Oh, yeah. Uh, so a, a, a lot of science fiction elements in it. Uh, I suppose if you were to try to set up a, a, a list of criteria and check off, if you have to check out six out of these ten things for it to be science fiction. You could probably check off six. Yeah. Um, essentially, very few science fiction people read it that I know of, and uh, very few people who made it a, a fairly well-received mainstream book paid any attention to the science fiction elements. Yeah. Um, this came up with Gravity's Rainbow uh, almost almost 40 years ago now, yeah. um, which may or may not be science fiction, but uh, if you enjoy reading science fiction, you probably will find it really yeah. fascinating. I'm sure. I was going to say, I've been thinking this week about um, entering our field, you know, our own experiences entering the field. Now, I guess it's partly triggered by the fact that we're 18 days out from Worldcon, which means about 16 right. days out from when I'll see you next, which I'm looking forward to. Um, cool. And we'll get to see all of our friends, and we, we will have that kind of conflict of worldview between being um, arguably professionals in the field and also being fans. Uh, and it, it was partly highlighted for me because I, in my, my day job, because I do the editing and locus stuff, as you know, as a part-time kind of thing, mm. I work in the internet area, and I went to this conference yesterday called Edge of the Web, cutting-edge web technologies here at, at the end of the world. And as I looked around, I realized I was at a convention, and I, it, I was an outsider for the first time since I went to my very first convention back in 1984, because there were a couple hundred people, all of whom were working in the same field, all of whom knew each other really well, um, and were caught up in conversations that were pretty opaque to the, to the, to the, to the passing kind of commentate, you know, person. And I mean, I was coming in from almost a managerial perspective. So it was sort of go along to this event and learn more about the area, which is great. But every, you know, the people who were hardcore for it, it was, I, I could imagine, or I was able to imagine very clearly how it would feel going to say world fantasy, which is my favorite convention in the world where I go in and I think, hey, I know nine-tenths of the people here, and they know me or they know of me, and uh, I could carry on detailed conversations with all of them quite readily uh, on all sorts of subjects which I find interesting, and they're likely to find interesting because we're, we have common ground. And I could see it happening around me, and it was quite an interesting and slightly alienating experience to sort of to, to see that happen again. It was interesting that um, I've been watching, I guess we can... Uh, give a plug to our friend Karen Burnham, who's been organizing a, a locus roundtable mm, discussion. Yeah. She will post at some point, um, asking various uh, people on the roundtable how they, uh, what, what their con convention experiences have been. And yeah. A lot of people have been responding with pretty much what you're talking about. A number of people uh, saying that the first science fiction convention they went to, they hated. They mm. didn't know anybody there. It seemed cliquish. Everybody knew everybody else. Uh, and this is not simply the professional community talking to other professionals. All the fans had their groups of fans, and it was yes for people. It was hard to find your way in. Yep, I have people who are now dear friends who walked past me at a, at a convention like I was just not even alive. Mm -hmm. um, and it wasn't that they were being terrible. It's that there's that strange sort of thing that happens. So at least this is my observation at science fiction conventions, where you have 
You have a group of people you only see a small number of times a year. It's the only you know, point where you'll see them. And if you've been around for any period of time, just the fact to, that you can see those people, is in, you know, it, it, it's the attraction, and you're then focused. You almost don't have time to meet anybody new when you're there. You know, it's like this coming uh, fortnight when we're at Worldcon. You know, it'll be, this is my one chance in the year to see you and to see our Locus colleagues. It's, it's one of the few times I'll see fr- you know, other friends you know, throughout the field. And that in itself is enough. And it does mean that sort of if somebody else were around going, hi, I'm somebody you don't know yet, you're sort of almost kind of – you, you don't want to be unfriendly because it's not about being unfriendly, but you're just busy. If that I know. Sense. And I find myself grateful when I uh, will be at a group table, at a, at a lunch table, and, and uh, ReaderCon is wonderful for this because there's a big sprawling pub uh, and people put tables together. And this, and, and, and I have the same experience you do. I very seldom get a chance to meet somebody I hadn't met before. I was sitting at a table, um, I forgot who who was at the table, a bunch of my friends, and I was sitting next to um, Karen Warren, who I'd never met mm-hmm. before. Yep. And we were chatting for a good 20 minutes before we introduced ourselves, and, and we'd heard of each other. Actually, she'd, I don't think she'd heard of me, but she certainly heard the podcast. Okay. Hi, Karen. <laughs> hi, yes. Uh, hi, Karen. So, uh, and that was, that was a delightful sense of discovery where you're talking to somebody for a while, and you're hitting it off, and you don't know who they are, and then you find out they're somebody that you know about. Yes. Um, I had that experience. The first time I had that experience was very dramatic. It was an academic convention. Uh, it was the Eaton Convention in uh, Riverside, California, as a matter of fact, many years ago. And a lot of the papers being delivered at the convention were, well, let's say dry theoretical academic papers. Some of them were very good, um, and some of them were just utterly boring. And I was standing in the back of the room listening to one of the really boring papers, talking to this guy, and we started making wisecracks about it, and we started making fun of academies and jargon and uh, uh, theory-mongering and so forth and so on. And we chatted for a half hour after that, and he finally, I introduced myself to him, I was, he, uh, and he was Gregory Benfrey, oh, yeah. who I'd never met before. I had no idea what he looked like, and we were just saying the same things. Since then, we've come to disagree on about a lot of things. <laughs> That was a bonding moment, and it was a, and I was a very young uh, academic at that point. And I thought I just made friends with Gregory Benford without knowing it, and and we have been friends ever since. Well, I mean, you know, I, I, you, know you, t- you talk about first conventions and then how you end up knowing people. I mean, I think you get different classes of first convention for a start. Like I had my first local convention, and I yeah. did go in knowing a few people there, but I still ended up not knowing lots. And then it became a very comfortable environment for me. But I remember my first ever Worldcon. Uh, which was the uh, 1993 San Francisco Worldcon. And I'd gone there with a couple of my friends from Australia, and we'd traveled around, met the, loc- the locus people, or at least I met Marianne, who I later married. Mm. Uh, I was ignored by Charles, but that was all right, because he didn't know who I was. But the, one of the things w- that had me sort of gosh wowed was, that year Stan Robinson was up for the Hugo for Red Mars. Uh-huh. And M- Marianne had got me into, you know, sort of as part of the Hugo, th- you know, the Locust thing, the celebrity area for, you know, for, um, you know, seating. And I was sitting, seating, seated, I oh, sorry, sat, I was seated right behind Stan Robinson. And I mean, I've been reading Stan Robinson's book since 1984 when Wildshaw came out. And I was like, oh, uh-huh. that's Stan Robinson right there in front of me. I was like, oh. And then, you know, like last year at Mel- you know, in Melbourne where he was guest of honor at Warcon, 
because of a vagary of scheduling, um, we ended up having breakfast together every morning and getting to know each other and becoming very friendly. And it's just mm -hmm. the way these things kind of play out when you're, you have a chance to be exposed to it and go along. Some of it, though, never gets back to the spark that got you into it. I mean, it's interesting looking at the sparks that got people into conventions and the sparks that got people into the field. This week, I had the chance as well to read a proposal for a book that hasn't been sold, uh, that I don't believe mm -hmm. has been written. Uh, and uh, I, I'm not talking out of turn because the, you know, you know, I think she's really hoping to sell the book. And I, I desperately hope she does. Our reviewing colleague, Adrienne Martini, mm. is looking to write a book about her experiences growing up lo loving Robert Heinlein. Uh, she's uh, been, uh, yeah, she's been putting some pieces up on the yeah. Locust blog about it. Yeah. Fascinating. And, you know, she talks about how, in, in the proposal, how her first Heinlein book was actually Friday. Of all the you know the Heinlein's books and period and everything else, and yeah. how she completely bonded with this book, fell in love with it, didn't notice all of the sexism and other problems you know that um, yeah she filtered out because there was this smart plucky character and she read on from there and then read everything to do with Heinlein and completely fell in love with him and it was only when she went back later that as an adult that she began reading and going. Gosh, it's really problematic that you know this tough, kick-ass heroine kind of doesn't mind getting raped and marries the man who raped her and all this kind of stuff. It looks to be a fascinating book, but it also talks about a core fanish experience, you know. I mean, and and we've talked about it a little bit here. I don't know whether on the podcast especially, but you know that first book, how you got into the field, how you it, you fell for it, how it completely changed things. I mean, Heinlein was such a, an important part of my worldview for a long time because of that. I, 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 would, I would guess that Heinlein may have generated more science fiction readers than any other single science fiction author with the possible exception of Wells. Um, yeah. but, um, but I'm not sure that Heinlein is, is, is that current uh, an example because one of the, well, a book which we've talked about and admired on the podcast before is Joe Walton novel, sure, among sure. others. Yeah. She came in Fairly late to that, I mean, she worshipped Tolkien and so forth, but she'd been reading Zelazny and, uh, and and various people from you know from from the seventies. Yeah. Um, how how you enter the field now is is very interesting to me because you're we're, we're talking about two ways of entering the field. One is how do you get hooked reading this stuff in the first yes. place, and and the second is how do you get into the community, which is a separate question altogether. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, and and just for the record, for me, if this was one of those sort of uh, Variety shows where you had to answer those two two questions. You know, it's like, for me, the book that got me into the field. Oh, that's terrible. The book that got me into the field was um, Citizen of the Galaxy, completely uh -huh. that I fell in love with. And the way I got into the fan side of the field was searching for a copy of Integral Trees by Larry Niven, which I'd heard existed and mm -hmm. couldn't find. And I literally rang every bookstore in the city to see if they had it. And the one that I had it was the one specialty bookstore in Perth that had just opened about four weeks before five weeks before, and it was um, full of fans. Never heard of fans. I mean, I hadn't even thought about the field as a coherent, unified thing. I just read science fiction. And that completely changed everything for me. I mean, I'm sitting here now blathering with you, rambling quite badly, I'm beginning to think, um, just because of that moment, because of, you know, because of that Larry Niven book that I was trying to find a copy of. Well, that... Did not happen to me. I mean, I, I, I had a couple of friends in high school who read science fiction. We thought we were all very odd. 
I was, I, I don't know, I was probably uh, teaching at Roosevelt. Or, I think I was by the time I went to my first fan convention. Mm. And I did find it funny because they were not fans of the kinds of things I was reading. Um, and it, it was it was getting the wrong combination of people uh, at that particular con, which is a very military SF con, and that's not what I was reading at that point. Um, I can't remember the book I started with. If there was a single one, I do yeah. remember... Um, I remember one very obscure book, and this would be a test case to see if anybody listening to us has ever heard of it, uh, which I must have been reading when I was eight, called Starship on Saddle Mountain. And it was a Western. <laughs> I've never heard of that no, book. This year with Cowboys and Aliens. Um, <laughs> set in the West, it was by a writer named Atlantis Hallam, which turns out to be a real name because I've checked this out. Um, <laughs> There, uh, who apparently wrote one or two other non-science fiction novels and disappeared utterly by the early 50s, uh, by the mid-50s. And But the book struck me as being very, my memories of it are very Spielbergian, that there was, this, the, the title comes from the kid growing up in the West with this saddle-shaped mountain that he looks at every morning when he gets up or, and, 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 or every night, and, and he wakes up one morning and the saddle is, is not there anymore. It's, it's filled, and what it's filled with is an enormous alien spacecraft. And then they whisk him off to another. It's probably a terrible novel. It's probably just awful. <laughs> but that led me to reading the early Andre Norton science fiction novels, not the Witch World novels, but Starman's Son. And, uh, those, yeah. and, and, and those things, I thought, were terrific. I mean, they were, uh, uh, they were I guess, by today's standards, juvenile science fiction. Yeah. That's where I first started dealing with post-apocalyptic worlds and mutants and so forth and so on. Of course, I was watching all the science fiction movies I could get my hands on yeah, at the same yeah. time. Um, but, um, but today, I don't think... Uh, I, I'm wondering if the young adult movement in science fiction is generating science fiction readers. I mean, Shipbreaker is clearly a science fiction novel. Uh, and if people, if kids like that, uh, they presumably would find other things like that. Uh, if kids read The Hunger Games... Are they going to try to find other dystopian fiction? Are they going to... Where are they going to go from that? I, I, I don't know. I'm not convinced that that there's an obvious entry-level point for uh, science fiction readers these days. I'm not convinced there is either, and I'm not convinced that Paolo's book is as much as I like it. Um, I think that we... I mean, it's a, it's a cliche. We've said it before. We, li we live in such a science fictional world that most of the things mm. that appear to be science fictional, they're, 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 they're absorbed by context. I mean, uh, Paolo's book becomes almost of a piece with hum Hunger Games rather than an entryway book to science fiction. Uh, the fact that, I mean, probably for a lot of readers, the, I, I imagine the fact that it's a YA book trumps the fact that it's a science fiction book, uh, though I don't know that for sure. Um, yeah, I think science fiction is now something that people find, I suspect that people find incidentally when they're looking at it. And, and also... It's part, it's, you know, unlike the way it maybe is, was for me at the time and the way it is now, it, it's not the main course of their reading. It's part of the, you know, broad spectrum of things that they read. You know, I don't know how you become a, a dedicated science fiction reader today. You know, um, I would love to know, but I don't. I, I, don't. I mean, maybe, I mean, the, the, apparently Ender's Game is still a major gateway book. Interesting is a major entry point, uh, and uh, it comes up on every popular, every broadly popular vote of, of favorite science fiction novels. It's, it's probably it's 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 way ahead of. Uh, I'm thinking of a poll I saw just very recently 
which we'll be able to talk about in a week or two. Uh, it's it's always way ahead of Heinlein and Asimov and uh, and people you know, people like Sturgeon and and, 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 and Simak are just they're, they're off the list. Nobody comes into science fiction that way. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing which I wonder if um, you mentioned the first specialty science fiction stores. Uh, that you went to, and when you discover something like that, or you discover a comic book store that has a lot of science fiction, mm -hmm. it seems to me those shops are disappearing, and that experience is becoming harder and harder to come by. Very much. I think that's exactly true. Um, certainly, I mean, I know of specialty bookstores, but you hear about them closing every now and again, um, and I suspect that particularly in the States, they've been heavily hit over the past 20 years, yeah. you know, sort of what with the closing of independence and now the damage to the, the chains and everything else. Maybe they'll come back. But with the, 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 actually, the funny thing is about this is there's no. You don't get bookstores online, Gary. Uh, I mean, forget. Well, I mean, for, yeah, right. yeah. If, if I were to if I were to tell you probably if I were to try to think back at the public library, what made me want to read science fiction probably was a cover. Yeah. It probably is a really neat monster or spaceship or galaxy or something really interesting. And I used to buy books by their covers. Yeah. Um, my first awareness of a separate publisher was when I recognized Ballantine covers. Yeah. Because it would be the Richard, uh, the, the Powers covers. Um, and I don't see how you get that experience anymore. <clears throat> you, can, you can download the cover image of a book uh, on your Kindle, but it's not the same thing as going into a bookstore and, and seeing... 20 different books with different interesting cover designs in front of you. No, it's not. I mean, in fact, I was having this conversation with a friend of mine who runs a independent bookstore here in town and saying that, to, I mean, I have this feeling that one of the challenges for booksellers is to find a way to recreate the browsing experience and take it online and to create a really intelligent, well-curated online bookstore. Uh, along the lines of a really good independent bookstore, because we you know, we do live in a world where there is too much stuff. I mean, there's just you you you, you you're never going to read everything, you're never going to see everything, you're never going to look at everything. It just it's physically impossible. And so, uh, if you've got a, a a really good online bookstore, you know that that's set up so that it can bring in some of the self-published material and some of the independent material and some of the bigger material and blend it together and present it in a way that makes sense and makes it browsable and makes it you know sort of something you could do more spontaneously i think you could do really well i think that's an experience people might respond to because we are going to bookstores less and less i mean by, both by necessity and by design um well one of the things that's uh, is hard to do though is to is to bring the passion to the, that recommending books that Mm. A good bookseller. I mean, one of my favorite bookstores in the states now, which you're familiar with, is Borderlands in San Francisco. Sure. Everyone who works at Borderlands, they don't necessarily agree on what science fiction or fantasy or horror they like, but everybody has a passion. Sure. And everybody pushes books that they like simply because they like the books. And to me, that's a much different experience uh, than than getting some you know Amazon algorithm that said if you bought if you like this, you would like that. Yes. Uh, which almost never turns out to be the case with me, by the way. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly true. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, yes, I, I find that in bookstores, and I do find that I go in and I browse and I pick up books that I never would have picked up otherwise, because I'm in the bookstore and I can see it. And I do, I, you know, I do understand that you know that most books are bought impulsively, and I don't. Mm. I've not yet found. I mean, I'm sure that there are people who do have it, but I've not yet found a paradigm where I'm shopping for something online impulsively. I. Yeah, I, yes, I buy books from Amazon.com, 
but no, I don't browse Amazon.com. I go looking for the books that I want. I find okay. find, find the idea of a, a list of 38,000 books useless to me. I mean, if, you were to, if, you were to, if someone gave you Borderlands Bookstore as an online list, it would be useless to you. That's true. Um, so the, the, what you don't see on Amazon.com is a bookseller. Yeah. And that's maybe a vanishing dream, but a passionate bookseller who may have odd things they want you to read, but, uh, but by getting into conversations with them, you develop your own modes, modes of argument. Yeah. Um, and it also works by the way as a footnote with, with, with academic research, because one of the problems I have with students now, um, one of my secrets as a, as, as a critic, as, an, as a researcher, as an academic, was um, finding the book that I wanted uh, in what they used to call the card catalog, and going into the stacks and looking at the book and then looking at the books on either side of it, books which I did not know I was looking for but are roughly about the same subject because mm -hmm. they were under Library of Congress. And I'd, I'd end up checking out four or five books I didn't even know about yeah. um, that I might not have found. And and you always and what, what, the, what that does for your research is you always end up being able to cite something that nobody else had thought of yes. because it just happened to be there. Uh, now you immediately, you know, click online for the exact book you want. You don't see the other books uh, that, that might be related to it. No, uh, no. It's, it, it's, very, it, it's the same kind of thing with, with choosing what to read. Um, the uh, uh, label science fiction at one time when I was a kid was enough to guide me to a finite number of books. The label science fiction now guides you to, I have no idea how many science fiction titles might be in print in the world right now. Many, but, many. The two dozen or so books that were in the public library when I was ten years old. Well, to give you an idea, while we're talking, I browsed to Amazon's store, and I went to the science oh. fiction category, not science fiction fantasy, just the science fiction category, and they just list an endless stream of seventy-two thousand titles. That's exactly what I'm talking about. It's, uh, I can't it's, make sense of that, and I wouldn't try. No. And what they're including in that are a lot of things that are outside of what I would consider my experience of science fiction. Oh, sure. Um, so. so I don't know exactly where, where this leads us, and, uh, ex except we're still stuck with the problem of you know, how somebody becomes a science fiction reader today. Somebody, we, uh, I'd be fascinating to see Adrian's book, but Adrian is, um, well, she's not a teenager. Oh, no, no. I was fascinated to look at Joe Walton's novel because it was a very specific novel with exactly the kind of attitudes that a teenager would have had in the late 70s. Yeah. Um, somebody who started reading science fiction in 2004, 2005, how did they start and where did they go from there? I have no idea. I remember a few years ago, Chris Rush in um, uh, the magazine of fantasy and science fiction wrote uh, an editorial about the, um, um, oh, the, the, the horror series, the, the, the kids' oh, horror yes, series, um, the, the Goosebumps. Yes, yeah. L. Stein. And, yeah. uh, and she expressed, and I hope I'm not misquoting her in this, but she expressed a hope that as awful and formulaic and pointless as these books were, uh, they were t teaching kids some of the tropes of science fiction. There were aliens in them, there, was, there were zombies in them, there were uh, all sorts of uh, science fictional things, and maybe these kids would you know, learn to understand, learn to read science fiction that way, and then move on to, uh, well, in the case of Stein, probably move on to more adult horror. Maybe that's eventually read Stephen King, and maybe that eventually work their way to 
Peter Straub, and maybe by now they're reading Laird Barron. I thought that was extraordinarily naive. Yeah. I didn't think that was going to happen at all. I've never seen any evidence of it happening. I don't think I've met anybody who um, was introduced to fantastic literature and continued to be a reader because of the R.L. Stein books. No. Um, but, possibly, but yeah. possibly the Christopher Pike books a little bit more. Yeah, yes. Yes. Um, I do think that I think people have entered the... Well, one other thing that's changed the way people approach science fiction, I think, has been the... And this is going to sound heretical to people who uh, realize how awful most science fiction movies are, but science fiction movies have educated people in the tropes of science fiction uh, in a very convenient way. For example, uh, I'm pretty certain that for a long time Hollywood probably thought... Um, Alternate uh, history, alternate time streams, John Bar points, um, creating different futures was, was way too complicated for movies. Yeah. And it seemed to me, and I, I know this from talking to kids, that the Back to the Future movies suddenly explained to a mass audience what uh, altering the time stream yes. mean. Yes. And after that, it became a convention in movies. Yeah. And all of that um, language that's been picked up from films and from TV. Is, is is what's part of what's getting people into it. I mean, we talk about you know, we talk about today. How does somebody get in there? What's the gateway? Da 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 da. And then you're going, well, hang on. Anybody today, typically in in the first world at least, has such a um such a vocabulary available to them. I mean, I, I look at my nine year old daughter, who's not a big science fiction reader at all, even though she's a reader and she may become a science fiction reader. But she's certainly seen Back to the Future and understands time travel. She's watched a little yeah. bit of Doctor Who. She likes the Sarah Jane adventures. She decided she wanted to read The Hunger Games. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, but she all, you know, it, it's part of the palette for them. So I, I, I don't know. I mean, it'll be an interesting thing over the next five years to see how book selling survives and to see how science fiction attracts new readers or whether science fiction becomes just even less discreet a part of things. I'm not sure it will be, but I think there's a possibility that science fiction would become more part of, even more part of the background of everything rather than anything else. So. It could very well be. Well, do we want to switch over a little bit? Yeah, well, I was going to say, I listen to other podcasts, and some of the more you know, sort of you know, sort of schmick, highly produced podcasts would have sort of a little bit of music. I know you don't want music. Um, and it would be their, their segue music. You know, like, and now... We take a break from our, our previous conversation where we rambled far down the road and we segue over to here. My segue is going to simply be to offer my congratulations for Swords and Dark Magic, which you and Lou Anders edited, being nominated for a uh, World Fantasy Award. Thank you very much. I'm delighted. I mean, as we speak, and this podcast will go out next, next week, as we speak, it's what, just yesterday that the nominations came out, and I have to take my hat off to the... Um, the, the, the five judges, uh, Andrew Hook, Sasha Mumchak, Mark Rich, Sean Wallace, and Kim Wilkins, uh, because I think that they have put together a very fine ballot. I mean, as with any awards ballot, you never agree with everything. Uh, but then I think that's the strength of a ballot. And this has enough on it that I'm happy in just about every category. Um, I was pleased and delighted to see Swords and Dark Magic there. And I know Lou is. Uh, and I think it's actually colored his opinion enough that he will now be attending World Fantasy, which I'm delighted about. So it should be a, a great weekend. It's just a tragedy, a tragedy, Gary, that you won't be there. 
I am well aware of the fact that it's a tragedy that I won't be there. And I'm even thinking about insanely flying out and flying back on Thursday or early Friday morning, but it doesn't seem likely. Yeah. Uh, uh, There's a world fantasy every year. There is a uh, granddaughter's botanist for once. Yes. Well, no, no, you have to go to that. Absolutely. You know, I mean, they wouldn't move the week after. I mentioned that to Neil Gaiman. He said, you can't come for world fantasy. You have to go to that. Oh, he's right, and you're right. But as I say, they couldn't move it to the week after. <laughs> it, is, it is frustrating because um, every one of the uh, – I've never met Lauren Bukes, although yep. her Zoo City was, was on a short list for the Crawford Award, which yes, I administered. Yep. As was Laura Jemison's 100,000 Kingdoms and, and Karen Lord's Redemption and Indigo. Karen Lord, our friend from this podcast. Yes. Hi, Karen. Uh, congratulations, Karen. Karen. Yeah, congratulations on, on, on being nominated on, on the Mythopaic Award as well. Mm. So, and Nydia Korofor's uh, uh, novel uh, is one we've talked about and admired as well. And Nydia yes. is somebody I know well. So, for once, uh, with the exception, uh, all all but one of these people on the best novel list are friends. Yes. Uh, and whose work I admire. It's also interesting to me that um, the five best novels are from five different publishers. Yes, um, five different con- uh, five different publishers, a uh, bunch of different countries. Right. Um, I mean, I, we should say just 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 to, to run through it up the top. For, for those of you not looking at the ballot right now, the nominees for best novel were Zoo City by Lauren Bukes, The Hundred Thousand Kim- Kingdoms by Nora Jemison, The Silent Land by Graham Joyce, Under Heaven by Guy Gabriel Kay, Redemption in Indigo by Karen Lord, and Who Fears Death by Nettie Okorafor. And it's a great ballot. I it think. really is. There's not a bad novel on the ballot. No. And, I mean, you could make predictions or guesses, or what I like to do sometimes is guess who got on the ballot by popular vote, because I think it's widely known that there's a popular vote that puts a couple yeah, of names yeah, on the is. ballot. I'm going to say it's probably Under Heaven by Guy Kay and 100,000 Kingdoms by Nora Jemison. Uh, that's exactly what I would have guessed. Um, yeah. I don't think this, I don't think, Graham Joyce is a silent land, which I uh, like a lot. I don't think had been that widely distributed early enough. Um, And Redemption and Indigo is just gaining amazing traction. Uh, And Who Fears Death made made an enormous splash. Yes. Uh, But the variety of publishers is encouraging to me because it strikes me that, you know, science fiction is, 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 as as much as we all admire uh, Tor, or as much as we all admire Golan, science fiction is no longer the province of a few publishers. No, it's not. I don't think it is. Um, And that's got to be a healthy thing, or I hope it's a healthy thing. Um, and I, I like that you see, you're seeing publishers who are being are producing work that's getting on ballots, and that work doesn't fit your preconceived prejudices about the publisher. I mean, the obvious one I'm talking about is Nedia Korafor's book, Who Fears Death, which we've talked about before, and right. pointed out that it doesn't seem to be a typical door book. Redemption in Indigo does seem to be a small beer book, and I think it's just a great choice. Um I don't have strong enough views on the other publishers, but I have either read or dipped into all these books. I mean, frankly, for me, Under Heaven was one of my favorite books of last year. I adored that novel. Um, I have no idea whether it stands a chance of winning, um, but I'm delighted to see it there. Um, and I really did love Nettie's book. I would, I would, I mean, it's one of those times where I, I can imagine sitting in the banquet room with friends, having a drink, and no matter what name they call up. I would feel pretty happy about it. Yeah, I would. I would. I would agree with that. I'm, I'm less familiar as 
I always am with the short fiction categories, but you probably know them uh, uh, much I've, better. When it comes to the novella category, and I'm not going to go through them all as I did before, but uh, I've not read The Broken Man by Michael Byers, I confess, or The Thief of Broken Toys by Tim Lebon. But I'm familiar with all of the rest, and I've enjoyed them. And two of them were amongst my most favorite stories of the year, uh, The Maiden Flight of Macaulay's Bellerophon by Liz Hand and The Lady Who Plucked Red Flowers Between, Beneath the Queen's Window by Rachel Swirsky. I will say I felt personally that The Maiden Flight of Macaulay's Bellerophon was a science fiction story, but that's just me. I think Liz views it that way as well. I mean, again, it's, it's, it's what we're talking about, associational items. Uh, I think it moves enough outside of uh, it, well, it certainly moves into the area of the fantastic if you yes. count the uncanny as the fantastic. Yes. Uh, but whether it's fiction, I don't think is. Um, I mean, one of the things I did admire about uh, the Neil Gaiman anthology stories, which is also nominated as best anthology, yeah. I found it an uneven anthology, frankly. Yeah. But I also found the idea of simply accepting stories on the basis of their quality without worrying about qualifications for one genre or another was a, a breath of fresh air. No, you can't. No, 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 stop. Stop, Gary. You're no. not allowed to say that you want to accept a story just because it's good. Naughty. Oh. We all get smacked for that now. We're going to get smacked? I'm, uh, of course we're going to. No, you're going to get smacked. You are on your own. I am on the other side of the microphone. I'm saying that I think it's nice that you can do an anthology of good stories without worrying about whether they belong in any genre at all or not. Yeah, I don't, you might be in trouble. I don't know. Uh, all I'm saying is you're out, you're out there on your own. I'm not following okay, you there. No. I will say there's some you, very fine stories and stories. There are some very fine stories and stories. There are stories that are less fine. Um, I'm actually interested to, to not see Neil's story there, actually, now that I think about it. But anyway, which just won the Locus Award. And just won the um, uh, Shirley Jackson Award yeah, as well. Yeah. Uh, uh, on the other hand, I was surprised not to see uh, Elizabeth Hand's story uh nominated for a Shirley Jackson Award, since the, the anthology was. By the way, you do the same thing, as long as, as long as I'm getting in trouble. Eclipse is full of stories that may or may not be genre, but they're all good stories, but there's a sense that they're all readable by genre readers. Yeah, that's true. I, I, I'm interested in the short fiction category. He's, so you see the segue, changing topic. Um, okay. <laughs> I, I really like Karen Fowler's story, and I really like Kids Johnson's story, so I think that's an interesting one. The anthology, I mean, uh, i got to say, having been fortunate enough to be nominated in the category two years running, which is just a, a pleasure and a delight, I'm happy to see John Adams get his first nomination in the category, I think. Um and I, it's interesting to see that there's a number of the books which were actually were up for the Shirley Jackson just a few mm. weeks ago. Certainly Haunted Legends and Stories and Swords and Dark Magic were. I don't remember if Black Wings were. The interesting one is that this is the, one of the first times we see My Mother, She Killed Me, My Father, He Ate Me by Kate Bernheimer coming in. And I have to tell you, mm. I think that's, that's the favorite for the award in my mind. Uh, if I were to guess as to why that would be the favorite, and the only reason I would think that is that I'm almost certain that that is a choice of the judges rather than the popular vote. Uh, oh, yeah. Not I'm going to so. yeah, guess the popular vote in this category was, was stories by Gaiman and San Antonio and, uh, and either, possibly Haunted Legends, actually, by Datlow and Mamatis. Uh, yeah. and, and if you were to use an extrapolative thing, you'd say there's a couple of stories from stories on the actual ballot so that would make it the most obvious thing. But that's not how the world actually flows. Um, 
My Mother, She Killed Me, My Father, He Ate Me, which is a collection of fairy tale kind of stories, including an original Karen Fowler story and a whole bunch of other stuff. It was actually a really interesting, well-compiled book, which didn't get a lot of press in, our, in the genre. And I think, no. I, just, I just have this feeling. I may be completely wrong, but I reckon come Halloween, Kate Bernheimer may have a World Fantasy Award for that book. I just have a feeling. Well, the thing that makes me think that's possible is, uh, which we have not mentioned yet, are the two Life Achievement Award winners. Yes. One but, is P Peter Beagle, who is no surprise at all. No. I mean, an absolute death. Uh, Peter Beagle is one of those people where if you, if you haven't been a judge, you look at his name and think he hasn't gotten one yet. Um, yeah. But the other winner is Angelica Garadisher, mm -hmm. uh, uh, who's, who's not uh, the book was translated, I think, by Le Guin. It was um, translated by Le Guin, yes. And, and it's the same kind of international flavor that you're seeing um, in this list, which you've already noted. Yes. Uh, my, he killed me, My Father, He Ate Me is a very international anthology. Um, and uh, Garadisher is an Argentine writer, I believe. Yeah, yeah. And um, we've already noticed the international flavor of the best novel category. Yes. I will say my fa one of my favorite categories is the best collection category. I think it's the actual the nomination quality is just outstanding. You've got mm -hmm. what, I, what I Didn't See in Other Stories by Karen Fowler, which is a terrific book. You've got Ammonite Violin by Caitlin Kiernan. Now, Kiernan is one of the best, best short story writers working associated to our field today, and it's a strong, strong book from her. You've got Mary Rickert's Holiday, which I really like. I must confess, I like her first collection more, but I do like this a lot. Uh, you've got Sourdough and Other Stories by Angela Slatter, which is a really strong book uh, coming out of Australia. It's an interesting book because... And this is something which Tansy Roberts has said, said to me about it several times. It's more, it's stronger as a book of stories than it is uh, as a set of individual stories, which is always an interesting kind of a phenomenon. And then you've got uh, Jeff Vandermeer's The Third Bear, which is also a terrific collection and has some fantastic stories in it. So all worthy winners. And uh, again, another really, really strong category. So, But we're, we're foxing. We're foxing. We're foxing here. Do you know why? We're not going to talk about best artist because, Why? honestly, my friend Sean Tan is going to win again. Just because he's Sean Tan, he's got an Oscar, he's going to win. We, we, we could touch on special award professional, and we, we could acknowledge that John Adams is up, which is really nice, that my, that my good friend Lou Anders and colleague is up for his pyre work, and people, you know, Mark Gascoigne for Angry Robot, the people from Editions of Bragalon, and the people from Shizine are up. But in the special award non-professional category, there are a few special things, Gary, and there are a few of them. We are, there are a few. Okay, you, you begin. I will. Oh, no, I'll begin. I mean, our friend Elisa. Yes. Well, Planet Press. That's, a, that's wonderful. That's absolutely wonderful. It is astonishingly yeah. delightful. It really is. I think the, the, the visibility, and I, I did tweet her to this effect, that what she's done in the last year uh, is, is remarkable enough to draw this kind of attention. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and our local listener, our friend uh, Charles Tan. Yes, which I'm delighted for. I'm actually, I mean, I'm happy with all of them, but I was just delighted with um, Elisa, Charles, and in fact, Lavi Tidhar's nominations. Just delighted for them. Uh, and I guess it makes me want to make a point that we have made before, and that people do often about awards. You get an awful lot of bad press, a lot of bad response to awards. People look at them and they kind of go, oh, that's not what I would have picked. That's not, a, you know, a, the best of the year, blah, 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 blah. And there's all valid points to be made. But being nominated is such 
an honor and such an affirmation that when you get it, you, you, you can't anticipate the effect of it. And I know for someone like Elisa, um, it is such a validation through a lot of hard work that she's put in. Irrespective of, I mean, I think Elisa cares if she wins because she's human and we all do. But I think Elisa won when she got a nomination. I know I felt like that when I got my first nomination for a major award. It was like, oh my goodness, you know, you, you noticed, you saw my work. You, it, It's incredibly important. And what the judges have done here is they've taken, and I'm sure this is true for all of them, I mean, Charles Tan labors voluminously in the isolation in the Philippines. And I hope this, this, this nomination is a validation to him, an encouragement to continue putting in the hours that are involved, and, and an, an acknowledgement that that work is appreciated and responded to, just as it is for people like Elisa, Matthew Kressel, Lavi Tidhar, working on his World SF blog, um, the people who did the Brighton Shock book. You know, that's the, well, one of the true values of awards to me. Well, I, I, absolutely, and I think one of the uh, I, I think there's an added value to an award like World Fantasy, uh, simply because it is a combination of popular vote and judges. Because there are a lot of people, including myself, when I've gotten nominated for awards, where I don't think I would have been nominated if it was simply a popular vote. If you put out an Amazon poll as to what the best uh, science fiction fantasy books, uh, you would you you know if, if you put out a massive People's Choice poll. You're probably not going to get books published by Small Beer or, or PS. Uh, no, non maybe not. Or, or, or things from Trising. Um, so you have, on the one hand, a uh, notion that a number of people have seen your work. You don't know how many people might have voted for you in the popular vote. But you also know that people who have given serious thought to your work in comparison to the work of other people find it worth nominating. Yeah. Now that's where judging comes in. Because that means you know that somebody has looked at your work in comparison to other work and yes. said, this is good. Yes, um, very true. Apologies for the printing noise. This is one of the uh, issues of broadcasting live from my office. But yes, I have to say, a, a, a great and a representative ballot. I'm going to be fascinated to see who wins come come the, you know, Sunday. Speaking of awards and winning as well, we are with us two and a half weeks out from Worldcon. Uh, Hugo voting closes, I think, tomorrow or the day after, so... Actually, I just realized this is completely irrelevant. It will have closed by the time you hear this. Dear, well, dear listeners. Time, so sure. I hope you voted. Or nominated. Sorry, I hope you voted if, if you're interested. And are we getting towards the end of it all, Gary? I think I, you know, you're, you're the one with the stopwatch. I mean, I've, I've lost my little time code thing here. on. Uh, <laughs> so I have no idea how long we're going, but I'm having fun. I, me too. I will say that, I mean, just, just to bring our listeners into our plans for the podcast in coming weeks, Gary. Uh, this yes. podcast will, will should go out uh, the, what, a week and a half before Worldcon, uh, the week before I go to America. Uh, then I'm actually, I think I, the time after when we would have been recording, uh, we will release the one we record next week, and I'll be in Sydney when we would, would have been. And then hopefully we'll get a chance to record a, uh, a podcast to go out during Worldcon. Certainly we will be recording podcasts during Worldcon. Uh, and we'll look to release those over the coming months as 2011 sort of unfolds. We have sort of all sorts of interesting things, I think, lined up that I'm looking forward we'll to doing. Some, some interesting people, we hope. Yes. Uh, and there are some interesting things happening uh, toward the end of the year, which we'll be talking about in future podcasts, but there's some very exciting novels coming out 
Um, yes. Very late this year. Like so, what? Uh, within a couple of weeks, well, within a couple of weeks, we can start talking about next year's Hugo nomination. Oh, shut up! <laughs> I love this field, but it's inexorable. <laughs> do you think? Um, do you think? Do you think? Do you think Riamdi is a likely Hugo nominee? Um. Yes. I do. Oh, uh, and I, th I think it is simply on the basis of his enormous popularity. Yeah. It's a very readable novel. I think people are going to like the novel. Uh, it may be one of those novels where people get all the way to the end of it and think, wait a minute, was there any science fiction in that? Yeah. And then think, well, I don't really care. No. Well, no. I mean, with a good book, you don't really care. Classification is really for the things you don't care. Well, not always, but it's quite often for the ones you don't care that much about. So. Well, you know well, what? I mean, yeah. We can have another discussion entirely about about the term speculative fiction. I mean, there's a new market. Oh, I hate that. Yeah, yes, yes, please tell me. I don't, I don't hate the term speculative fiction. Yes, but there's a speculative move. There's a kind of speculative uh, strategy that can be used in fiction, which is not technically science fiction. Sure. You recognize people who write in a science fictional way, whether they're writing science fiction or not. Yes. Um, and Phil Stevenson is like that. If you read, uh, here's a good example. Read Joe Haldeman's novel 1968, which is a very straightforward yep. Of, uh, of of the Vietnam War, both at, uh, at home and in Vietnam, it's it's not a, there's not a word of science fiction in it, but it reads like a Joe Haldeman novel. Yes. No, no, I understand. I do, I do. <sighs> well, look, we have wandered all over the place, uh, and it has been fun. But we might wind up for the moment and see if we can come back with something even a little bit more coherent next week. Okay, we'll see what we can do next week. We'll actually try to have a plan. That would be would be good. This, this was, it's always good. Hopefully, you, hopefully, dear listener, you will bear with us till next week. All right. We'll talk Until to then. You then. Okay. Take good care, Gary. Okay. Thank you. Bye.